You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. the gospel message, the good news that we say. Well, if it's such good news, why then do we keep it to ourselves? I thought it was good news. Everybody wants to share with me bad news. Oh, this is terrible. You should hear this. Oh, this is terrible. You should hear that. We don't want to share good news with anybody. They carried the gospel. They went everywhere they went. They shared it. Whomever they came in contact, they were not ashamed of the gospel. See, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's nothing to join. There's no system to climb. There's just a person to receive into your heart and to believe in. A secret is something you hide away, not telling anyone about. But today, Pastor Dave is reminding you that the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, shouldn't be a secret that you're keeping hidden from everyone. It's something you should want to tell everyone about, unashamed and proclaiming to all who will hear. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 8 as he begins his message, The Persecution Begins. You are sure. Today we are going to start a new section in the book of Acts, and we'll talk about that. We are going to start Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, well, we will be in the first four verses of Acts 8, so if you will turn there. Verse 1, now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word of God. Now the title of this message is The Persecution Begins. And Friday is my message day. I start thinking about the message sometime Sunday afternoon. I know where we're going, which is one of the nice things about teaching through the Bible. And I begin to read, and I begin to study, and I, I, I think about it all week long. But Friday is the day that I actually sit down and try to get everything done for the first draft. And then after the first draft, I like to leave it aside and let it ferment for a while. And after it ferments, I go back to it, and I mess around with it a couple more times. So this was already done by Friday afternoon or Friday evening or Saturday morning, whenever it was, and I put it away. But I was on the Internet, and I was looking around, and all of a sudden something caught my eye, and I looked at it, and I went, oh, my, I need to read that at the beginning of this message. Remember, the message is entitled, The Persecution Begins. The Persecution Begins. Let me read you something off the Internet that came yesterday. City demands Christians get permit for Bible study. Chuck and Stephanie Fromm already had been fined $300 for holding a Bible study in their friend's home. And they faced the potential of an additional fines of $500 for each study held, according to the legal team taking their case to court. The newest conflict over Bible studies is in the home in America arose in San Juan Capistrano, California where city officials say that city code section 9-3.301 prohibits religious organizations in residential neighborhoods without a conditional use permit. 
By the way, this permit is very costly. Remember the name of the title of the message, The Persecution Begins. Exactly one year ago today, we began our study in the book of Acts. As we began our study, we said that the book of Acts in this New Testament was a source book for the spread of the early church. Without it, we probably would know little about the apostolic church except for what we might glean from Paul's letters. Think about that. In fact, in his book entitled Acts, the Church of Fire, R. Kent Hughes writes that the theme of this book is tracing the work of the Holy Spirit through the birth, infancy, and adolescence of the church. It's basically what the book of Acts does. And we said here on this stage many times that the book of Acts, which is called the Acts of the Apostles, just as easily could have been entitled the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The study of the book of Acts is particularly important to us because of several things. First of all, it teaches us how to experience a stimulating and exciting life. It teaches us where to get the power to live the Christian life the way Jesus wanted us to live the life that he had given to us. It teaches us that we can do all things when we're strengthened by Christ through the Holy Spirit, and that is changed by our love and has changed our world within us. The book of Acts also teaches us that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be witnesses wherever we go. Wherever we go, sharing the love of Jesus Christ as we go along the way. The message of the book of Acts is timeless and has not changed since the very chapter of the book, the very first chapter. The message is timeless. It hasn't changed. In the very, very first chapter, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has laid down in the clearest terms the mission for those who are following after him. And that mission of the church that would call itself a New Testament church, that would dare to have a mandate of apostolic Christianity. I want to be a first century church, you hear people say. We want to go back and be a first century church. Well, if that is your desire, which is a good desire, by the way, you better read the book of Acts, and you better look at everything that's in there. Because in his final earthly words, in the final words of Jesus Christ when he was on earth to his disciples, right before he ascended into heaven, he says this, and he declares what the mission is. He declares exactly what the mission is for these people left behind as he has ascended. In, in Acts 8, I mean, excuse me, in Acts 1, verse 8, he declares, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses of me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and the end of the earth. Remember, the Greek word for witness is martus, and it means martyr. This is the reoccurring theme in the book of Acts. We are to be witnesses of Christ. It's the core commission that the Lord has given us. In the Gospel of Matthew, you know it all too well. In Matthew 28, Christ gave the apostles his great commission. And the great commission can be found in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus tells his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Christ gave his disciples, a command, a commission. One of the first things we see in the book of Acts is where the disciples get the power to accomplish this commission. They receive the Holy Spirit. And that becomes the power when we talked about that. And I went back and looked at all those messages we did. We talked about the power of the Holy Spirit being likened to the steam that drives a steam locomotive. 
It's the power source that drives the Christian. The Holy Spirit is the power source that makes us move and keeps us moving. When the engine runs out of steam, they need to refill it with water so that the steam can be reproduced. When we become empty of the Holy Spirit because we've been serving and given it out, likewise, we need to come before the Lord and pray for it to be refilled. The scripture there is be ye being filled. Continual filling and flowing of the Holy Spirit as it comes. This is what we see the apostles and the disciples doing in the book of Acts. There's a general outline to the book of Acts. And we see that, that disciples who are filled with the Holy Spirit, they start to spread the gospel message in Jerusalem. And this is what happened in, in chapters 1 through 7. 1 through 7 we saw where Jerusalem was the target. Jerusalem was the main, main point of Christianity. And everything that happened in chapters 1 through 7 happened in Jerusalem, around the temple area. And you look back, that's what we studied for the last year. The beginning of the new church, the re the birth of this church. It's the first part of the mission that Christ had told them. Remember? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they were witnesses in Jerusalem. So as we begin this next section, which is, on, by the way, only two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, we see the disciples, they're dispersed, they're scattered. But as they are dispersed and as they are scattered, they take with them the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And they share this gospel message in Judea. They share it in Samaria. The mission continues. Likewise, the mission continues today with us. We're giving no less charge. We're given no less charge than to continue to spread the message of the gospel message. We are given no less charge than to make disciples of everyone we meet and all people we see. We've given no less power by the Holy Spirit to do this mission. See, nothing has changed. We still have Christ in us. We still have the Holy Spirit, and we're still called to make disciples. What were the disciples equipped with when they did this? Well, it's said of the disciples that they turned the world upside down. They turned their world upside down with this message. What did they have that maybe we're lacking today in our church? Or what did they have that maybe we're lacking in our lives today? Well, first and foremost, all the disciples were born again. And it's no coincidence that this subject keeps coming up. S Sundays, Wednesdays, Sundays, it keeps coming up. It's the central message of the Bible. You want eternal life? You must be born again. It's a, it's a message that continues to flow from the Bible. Being born again is having a relationship with Jesus Christ, accepting his sacrifice on the cross for sin, believing that God had raised him from the dead. The disciples had this. They believed. They believed at last, Christ proclaimed in John. They believed who he was. They knew who he was. And secondly, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of Christ. This is what the disciples had. This is what the disciples carried with them to other places. Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Christ is with them, and as they go, and as they're scattered, they carry the gospel message to the various parts that they end up in. This is what the apostles did. This is what the disciples did when they were scattered. They were scattered. They were sent away. They were chased. They were chased away. But they took the word of God with them, and they made more disciples. See, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they had a message, and it was a simple message. Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. He died to pay our sins. He was resurrected, and now he's exalted in heaven, and he calls us to believe in him, and so the forgiveness of sins we receive when believing in him. They carried the gospel message, the good news that we say. Well, if it's such good news, why then do we keep it to ourselves? 
I thought it was good news. Everybody wants to share with me bad news. Oh, this is terrible. You should hear this. Oh, this is terrible. You should hear that. We don't want to share good news with anybody. They carried the gospel. They went everywhere they went. And they shared it. They, whomever they came in contact, they were not ashamed of the gospel. See, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's nothing to join. There's no system to climb. There's just a person to receive into your heart and to believe in. And when you do, you have eternal life. Kind of a neat deal, isn't it? The message is very, very simple, but it's powerful. It is so powerful. And I think sometimes we forget the power of the message that we carry. I think we forget the power that we carry. You can see what that power is in Romans. In Romans 1, verse 16, Paul declared what that power was. Paul boldly says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What is this power? Well, Paul explains what this power is in verse 17. For in this, in the gospel, the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, and this is the good news. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed because even God could not forgive our sins unrighteously. You hear what I said? God could not forgive our sins unrighteously. There had to be a righteous basis for the forgiveness of sin. For a judge to totally dismiss charges against a man who is indeed guilty is not righteous. God cannot say, you're forgiven. There has to be a righteous basis for his forgiveness. He is a righteous and holy God. There has to be there. There has to be a righteous basis for our forgiveness of sin. And that righteous basis is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where the righteous basis is. For God sentenced the one who sins to death. That was his sentence. The wages of sin, death. Clear. And that's the only righteous thing to do is put to death one who sins. That's the only righteous thing left for God to do. But God established a righteous basis for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. This became the substitute. Taking our sin upon himself, dying in your place, in my place. The righteous for the unrighteous. Thus providing God the righteous basis now for his forgiveness. You're forgiven because Christ died for you. There's power in that. He took your place. The debt you could not pay, he paid. He took your place and died, and thus the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is, as is written, the just shall live by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the substitute. Faith in that he took my sins away. And that, my children, is good news. It is good news. See, the message they carried Although simple, it requires costly commitment for those who carry it. There is a price. We've talked about this before. See, the message is the word of God, and it touches our innermost being and changes us deep inside. That's the message. If we're to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ, our Savior, we cannot stand on the sidelines of life. Our lives must display the inner reality of what we externally proclaim. That's a fancy way of saying your walk has to match your talk. Your walk has to match your talk. We must soul search ourselves honestly to speak, to make sure that what we're saying is real and that we are real in what we're saying. And it's not a hypocritical walk. 
Because so many times it's the hypocritical walk that turns people off from Christ. Being an authentic witness demands an open, tender heart that is always growing in the experience it proclaims. Are you growing in the experience that you proclaim? Maybe one of the reasons you don't proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ is you're not growing in that experience. And maybe you don't really believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe it really hasn't had an effect in your heart. Therefore, you can't proclaim it. That might be true there. As I've said, these new believers were born again. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They had received the Word of God. They were real. They were authentic. And their lives exhibited Christ's life. They reflected His life in their own. And there was passion. We sang this morning, give me one pure and holy passion. Do you have a passion for God? Do you have a, a passion that is deep within you, that is seated so deep, that comes out in ways that you can't even fathom? A passion that says, yes, I want more of God. I want more of Christ in my life. I want to become more Christ-like. I want to become more holy. What's your passion? The nation's crying out right now, today, all day, every Sunday from now until, until January. Are you ready for some football? Because everybody has this passion for this crazy game. Do you have a passion for Christ that exceeds that of this game? Do you have a passion for Christ that exceeds that of anything else in your life? What truly is your passion? We saw this passion as we looked at the first part of Acts. We saw this passion in Peter when he stood before the Sanhedrin and, and gave his first sermon and 3,000 people were saved. We saw this passion in Stephen who was faithful even to death with the message and the passion that he had. <laughs> we spoke of George Whitefield. There's a story that when he was preaching in Edinburgh, that the people would get out of their beds at 5 o'clock in the morning to go hear him preach. They would get out of their beds at 5 o'clock in the morning to go hear him preach. But there was this one man, his name was David Hume. He was a Scottish philosopher and he was a skeptic. Well, he was on his way. He was one of those on his way at 5 o'clock in the morning to go to the church to hear Whitefield. He met up with a colleague of his. A colleague looked at him and said, I didn't think you believed in the gospel. He looked at him and replied, I don't, but Whitefield does. He knew there was something in Whitefield because Whitefield believed what he was saying. When you say the gospel message to someone, do people believe that you believe what you're saying? Are you believable when you share the gospel message with them? Do you believe what you say? It's true. Think about it. Man, that's, that's really soul searching. I've done some soul searching on this. And when you say you believe in Jesus Christ, well, can I say that? And can people look at me and go, yeah, that guy believes. See, the message they had was simple. But the demand on the messenger is really serious. It's really, really serious. To withstand what was about to happen to the apostles and to the disciples, they had to believe in what they said. They had to believe the word of God. They had to have an inner reality, and they had to have passion. Because what was coming, trust me, people, is not very nice. I read the list of you of how they were all martyred. What's coming, what's in the future for these people is not pleasant at all. We saw it happen in Stephen. So as we begin this next section of the book of Acts, the mission continues. And the disciples are armed with the message from God to go forth from Jerusalem. But they're not just going forth lollygagging. They're chased out. They are chased out by a hunter. And this hunter hunts them like a ravaged wolf hunts a prey. He hunts them because he's a persecutor and he's a zealot for God. And in case you don't know, the man's name is Saul of Tarsus. And his personal quest was to rid Israel of this way. Get rid of it completely. 
And we begin in Acts 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At the time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except for the apostles. We first met this gentleman, Saul, back in chapter, or chapter 7, verse 58. Back in chapter 7 and verse 58, he was taking the people's clothes as they were stoning Stephen, and he was lay, they were laying them down at his feet, and he was basically watching over the clothes, you know, as this stoning was taking place. But we start to learn more. The Scripture says he was consenting to his death. His death is Stephen's death. Paul was consenting. And you know, I like to dabble in Greek. I like to look what the true meaning of the word is. I think it's a lot of fun, and we really can glean from that what the Scripture is really saying. Well, bear with me here, but the Greek word here is sunyo doheo. It means to feel gratification, to be pleased with or have pleasure with. Paul enjoyed watching Stephen die. Paul received, Saul received pleasure watching Stephen die. That's what it's referring to. That's how much Saul hated Christians. That's how much Saul was against what was happening. So who is this Saul of Tarsus? Who is this guy? Remember, I've always said, and I will always contend, that the very best commentary of Scripture is Scripture. All right? So I've got a billion Scriptures here where Paul basically introduces himself. First of all, we know in Acts 2, verse 3, that he was born in Sicilia. Philippians 3, verse 5, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In Acts 23, verse 6, he was a son of a Pharisee. In Acts 16, verses 37, he was a Roman citizen. He was educated in Jerusalem by Gamaliel. We found that out in Acts 22, verse 3. He became a devoted Pharisee. We found that out in Acts 26, 4 and 5. When you measure Paul by the law, he was blameless. It says that in Philippians 3, verse 6. He was one of the most promising young Pharisees in Jerusalem, and he was well on his way to becoming a great leader in the Jewish faith. You can find that out in Galatians 1, 14. Saul's zeal for the law was displayed most vividly in the persecution of the church, it says in Galatians 1, 13 and 14. He really thought that persecuting the believers in this way was his way of serving God. He really thought that he was serving God as he was doing this. And he says he did it in a clear conscience. We find this out in 2 Timothy 1, 3. He believed what he was doing was right for God, and this is scary to me. This is scary to me. Do you ever realize how many, thing do, how many people do extremely bizarre things in the name of God or a God? The clear thing that came to my mind is how about the person who professes to be a Christian? He professes to be a Christian, but he goes to an abortion clinic and he kills people in the name of God. Now he deduces, well, you know, God told us that we shouldn't murder. Abortion is murder. And then he murders people. It doesn't make sense. People do bizarre things in the name of God. You've all heard of the Spanish Inquisition. Did you know that as late as 1850, there were human sacrifices in Burma? How about the Salem witch trials or the Mormon, the Mormon massacre? Hitler even thought he was doing God's work. And who could forget the Crusades? All done in the name of God. You are a sure. 
You've been listening to Pastor Dave on Assure Hope. Pastor Dave is working his way through the book of Acts. Did you know that the first martyr for Jesus was a great man of faith? His name was Stephen, and he was bold and courageous to proclaim the name of Jesus to others. He wasn't afraid to tell the truth, even when it cost him his life. What courage in the midst of opposition. Do you think you could do the same in this day and age? It's hard to stand up for Jesus when everyone around you is telling you you're intolerant, unloving, and just looking to put people down if you tell them they're doing something wrong. But what makes things right or wrong is firmly rooted in Scripture. It's God's Word that should direct morality, and Stephen was unafraid to go there. If you like this message and would like to catch up on any message you may have missed, head over to AsureHopeRadio.com. There you'll find many messages from the Book of Acts, as well as other series. If you find yourself in the Cape May, New Jersey area, stop in and see us. All the information you need is on our website, location, directions, and service times. And if you prefer to call, you can do that too. Our number is 609-884-5821. Once more, that's 609-884-5821. We'd be happy to answer any questions over the phone. Well, that's all we have time for today, but we've loved spending this time with you. We look forward to the next edition of A Sure Hope. Show.